my first property deal, I actually made a $30,000 loss. Actually, today can speak conversational Swedish. Jag pratar mycket bra svenska. Welcome everybody to the Urban Property Investor Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Saggers, and I'm here to help crack the code of real estate wealth. Today, I'm going to continue to unpack my story from our first ever episode. Episode two is really about understanding how I went from socialist to staunch capitalist running property businesses across Australia. Today, I come to you as a business owner of Positive Real Estate, and I want to give you a bit of foundation information as to how I ended up being part of the Positive Real Estate family, the Positive Real Estate group, and of course, have gone on to being a managing partner at Australia's oldest real estate agency, Richardson and Ranch through the Projects Division. Today, we're going to explore real estate. We're going to explore my first ever property deal, the things I got wrong, the things I've got right, making money, and of course, changing the world through property, which I think is all of our missions when it comes to being great property investors. Property, of course, is Australia's number one vehicle when it comes to wealth. More Australians have more wealth through real estate than any other asset class. So the study of real estate is ultimately very important for everybody listening. If you've never bought a property, that doesn't matter. Through this podcast, I'm going to train you to be an awesome property investor. If you're a pro, you'll pick up new tips and information in this podcast to learn, adapt and apply to your real estate mission. Now, I tell you what, today is really about learning more about me, your host and understanding how I travelled from uh, really uh, the poorest boy in my neighbourhood to today talking to you as a real estate expert. If you haven't listened to episode one, I think it's time you go back. You may have seen the title of this particular episode and clicked it. It could be the bait you were looking for in life. But I tell you what, put this particular episode down if you have not listened to episode one. It really is the foundation for this particular episode. So I would encourage you to go back and go and listen to our first ever episode. So... If you listened to our first episode, you would remember my life took me to Sweden and the study of socialism. Of course, I grew up uh, a very poor person in a very rich world. I had both a rich dad and a poor dad. If anyone's ever read the book Rich Dad, Poor Dad by Robert Kiyosaki, I didn't really have to read the book. I lived the book. And growing up in a world where I grew up, I actually realized the only concept I did know was the idea of money, the idea of working hard, investing principles to make money. 
But I wanted to venture out and see the new world, see a different type of way of living. And for me, having a background with friends who were Swedish, I decided to try socialism. And as discussed in episode one, I moved over to Sweden. Actually, today can speak conversational Swedish. Uh, so for all my Swedish friends out there, um, uh, I tell you what, when I've had a few lagers, I'm bloody good at Swedish. Uh, but my year in Sweden absolutely changed my life. As I mentioned in episode one, I got to live with migrants and actually understand that the world is a pretty nasty place. And if you can start to walk in another person's shoes, you can really comprehend that some people have to do it tougher than others. But there is a way forward for everybody. And for me, the foundation year I had in Sweden, the gap year, if you want to call it, living as a migrant in a very uh, horrible kind of place, really reframed my well-being when it came to understanding that places actually matter. People matter, but places matter too. Now, I want to paint the picture for you. Picture the Soviet Union and apartment complexes which were just dour and horrible. This is really what apartment living was like as a migrant in Sweden. The accommodation was very pleasant inside, but outside just very dour. So I became a socialist living with migrants. And for me, the experiment of living the socialist way was an awesome thing to go through. But I tell you what, I soon realized I could not do it. Things started to upset me about living the socialist way. And of course, if you don't understand the socialist dynamic, well, it's pretty simple. Rich people and poor people are not meant to be. Most people are meant to be the middle class. And the middle class is meant to just serve the state and live a fairly decent way of living. People weren't meant to think outside the box. Simply put, most people were designed to just go to work, pay great taxes. They were socially engineered to be responsible. Swedes are awesome people, but they are socially engineered not to be entrepreneurs. They are engineered to play it safe to drive the Volvo, to ride the bicycle, to have a very pleasant life. And of course, you can think of the great Swedish brands around the world just to, to think about it. Think of Ikea, just how practical Ikea actually is. Ikea is in every Swedish person's house. They all have Ikea furniture. It is a system which works but it's a system that doesn't work for the entrepreneur, right brain kind of person who wants to get out there and change the world in their own way. For me, my first examination of Swedish society was something which I thought was just amazing. 
when you go to the bottle shop in Sweden, you go to a system called System Balaget, and to buy a bottle of beer, you actually have to hand over your tax file number. Your tax file number, your ID number actually is recorded. So how much beer you drink, what kind of wine you buy. The state fundamentally knows everything about you. So, of course, here in Australia, we would probably be in uproars at the civil libertarian uh, things that you're giving away to the government. But in Sweden, it's a functioning society. It works. But for me, I soon realised I was a business person. I was an entrepreneur. I couldn't actually toe the line and be a company worker, a person who... Uh, really was socially engineered just to go to work every day and pay my taxes and go home and, and, uh, and call it a day. Little things frustrated me in Sweden. The fact that you couldn't get home delivery on takeaway food didn't make sense to me. Why hadn't someone started a home delivery business to uh, bring people food? All sorts of little dynamics were playing in my head. I could start a business doing this or that. And Sweden was really my wake-up call to coming back to Australia and designing my own life through business as much as designing my own life through property investment. It was the year that I spent learning another system that really allowed me to come home and start a life as a business person. Of course, when I came back, I was besotted with the idea of helping refugees. Now, as you would have heard in episode one, I got to live beside many different vulnerable people from all over the world, from Kosovo refugees, from war-torn Yugoslavia to war-torn uh, Middle East, I was living with them. I was partying with them. In fact, I used to throw parties for refugees on Saturday nights in Sweden because I felt so bad for them. I used to ring my rich mates in London and say, I tell you what, why don't you come over here for the weekend and let's throw some parties. And we used to throw the biggest parties the world has ever seen in Sweden for refugees. They used to have a bloody good time. Uh, and uh, we used to treat them to a, to, go, to a great experience. But when I came home from my adventure overseas, I was determined to change the world. And my first foray into the comprehension of changing the world, I went off and studied migration law. I decided that I wanted to help migrants and help them relocate into Australia or help the refugee dynamic of society and I went out and got myself a migration law degree which is really what a migration agent practices with if you've ever had any dealings getting a loved one into the country. Migration agency practice is the practice of migration law. I went out and started my own migration company. I actually went to an old real estate friend, someone I'd worked for before and decided that it was time to rent some retail space and I rented it on Glebe Point Road in Sydney. 
off an old uh, real estate contact. And I teamed up and did my first joint venture. I actually teamed up with two Chinese Australian ladies. We decided to become immigration lawyers for uh, students, for uh, international migrants looking to come to Australia and, of course, do some refugee advocacy on the side to help people for free fundamentally. And we began and we got customers and we started certainly helping people. I remember helping uh, Hazari Afghanis. If you've never heard of an Hazari Afghani, they are kind of the indigenous person of Afghanistan and at the time were very uh, much affected by some of the problems in, of course, a Taliban-run Afghanistan. But for me, uh, being a migration lawyer or agent was not profitable to begin with. And I think anyone who's gone out and started a business soon realises the uh, dream is not the reality. The reality is you don't get paid, you don't have any money, and you work longer hours than people with a normal job. You quite often question your own sanity. What am I doing this for? Why am I working twice as long as anyone else doing something that doesn't pay me absolutely anything at all? In fact, for my early years of business, my first seven economic years of my life, I was broke. The balance of my economic life, rich. The first seven years of my economic life, absolutely broke. So for me, I had to take on new gigs, new arrangements. See, today we talk about the idea of side hustles, parallel careers. For me, I've been parallel careering for as long as I can live, creating income sources from multiple income streams, whether that's business, property, shares. At the time, I needed to create more revenue, and so I started the family business or continued the family business of being a market entrepreneur. I actually decided to get into the Christmas decoration business, which today is booming. But I tell you what, back then, no one had thought about being, bringing handcrafted Christmas ornaments into Australia. My father and me, we decided to do a deal. We would go over to Baguio in the Philippines and find people who could hand make Christmas decorations. And of course, we found some great nativity sets and we brought them back to Australia, shipped them in by the container load and I was off to the races, started my market adventures. I had market stalls at Balmain Markets, Roselle Markets, Glebe Markets. And what I would do is on the weekends, I would get some friends, pay them some cash to run the stores, and I'd race around between all three stores on the weekend, stocking them up if they were going well or commiserating with myself and just eating food. Um, if it was raining that day and no one was coming around to the stores. The markets was a great way. It kept me afloat as I was kind of running this migration industry or business. And 
Really, without the markets, I probably would have had to go have gone back to work. But the markets also taught me a great lesson in life that competition will kill you. And it was around that time of doing the markets that the $1 and $2 shops began to open around uh, Sydney, selling Christmas decorations. And yes, the ass fell out of the Christmas decoration marketplace. And today, I still have boxes of Santas if anyone's interested in uh, a little bit of paraphernalia around their Christmas. I mean, I'm still stocked up and stuck with this stuff. It just, I think by the time I die, I will be remembered on my plaque, the guy who still has a shitload of Christmas decorations. So every Christmas, uh, I still try and sell a few here or there, but uh, it was definitely an interesting time of my life and it's still haunting me today. It's around that time I was able though to use the very loose lending conditions to go out and buy my first property. My first property was something I was ultimately so proud to do. I'd seen friends and family members all get into the real estate market and all make money out of it. I thought buying real estate was as simple as just grabbing a piece of property and one or two years later, you became rather wealthy. Of course, the first property I bought wasn't the greatest. It was absolutely a bit of a train wreck. I decided to buy a property nearby where I lived, nearby where I was working at the time. And really, the only reason I bought the property was it was close to me. And I really had a foundational principle. If I could see the property, then I would feel certainty and security. Of course, in the real economic world, property market doesn't work like that. Just because it makes you feel safe that you can walk past the property doesn't mean the property is going to go up in value. In fact, the first property I bought, I bought it very late in the property market cycle of its time, paid way too much for the property. I paid and bought someone else's capital growth and I bought a very old property. Once I realised that I was holding an absolute debt bomb at the time for my wage, I started to really question why had I done this and the people around me. And the people around me were fundamentally either real estate agents or uh, at the time, my migration community. Now, here's the thing you need to know about real estate agents. Real estate agents, deep down, are good people. But most of them are broke. Most of them don't make more than $50,000 per, per year. Most of them actually don't even invest in the asset class that they sell. Most real estate agents do not own real estate. They may own their family home, but most real estate agents are not investors. My first experience at buying property was being mentored by other real estate agents who don't own real estate to go and buy real estate. Now, this played on my mind. This 
fundamentally tortured me at night time that I had listened to people who had no right to give me a lesson. And I think most people can relate to that. Most people really do surround themselves with people who perhaps with the best intent and the best love give really bad advice. I know speaking from experience that most of my friends and family are really not wealth people. Yet everyone seems to carry an opinion around wealth. So why do we listen to the wrong people? Why do we let people enter our world which are going to actually accidentally cause us disharmony and even harm? For me, I listened to the wrong people, people who were real estate professionals, who did not own real estate, who had never invested in real estate. And it took me to a place where I bought my first property and made my first big error as a real estate rookie. Paid too much for a property, brought something which was falling down. Within a matter of months of owning the property, I soon realised this thing is going to cost me an absolute fortune. It's going to uh, take every spare cent I had and absolutely uh, cause problems when it comes to my income situation. And my income just literally I started to have none because it was being poured into this property. I'm sure a lot of people have been through this situation. You have to make a business decision. Do you keep the property? Do you soldier through? And for me, I decided to move the property on, give it back to the market. My first property deal, I actually made a $30,000 loss on the property deal by buying it for too much and then reselling it as a loss. The experience, though, was a really good experience. We all pay for education in one way, shape or form. And for me, that $30,000 loss was probably the greatest education piece I could have asked for because it actually meant I went searching for a better way of doing things. And the lesson, well, it really taught me what a good property was, what a bad property was, that we all will pay for education. We're either going to do it through mistakes or we're going to do it through actually buying the right education to begin with. And that real estate is all about collaborating with the right people, not the wrong people for the right results when it comes to making money out of property. So it was very serendipitous that I got to meet Jason Witten. Jason Witten and I have been in business running property finance and education companies for now 17 years. When I met Jason, I kind of realized I'd met a billionaire in the making. And for me, I just thought if I could hang around this guy long enough, something's going to rub off well for me. I literally knew that this mastermind of business was someone I just needed to ride the coattails of 
and I could get where I needed to go in life. And today, I'm still riding Jason's coattails. He's still a mastermind of business and uh, certainly someone who's inspiring. So make sure you check out his podcast. He does some great conversation pieces with many of the best people in the industry of real estate, many people who are buying real estate and building their own quality property portfolio. So check out Jason. He's an absolute weapon. Jason taught me one of the most fundamental business principles. You don't get rich out of starting a business. You get rich out of changing an industry. Together, we decided to change the real estate industry. And of course, for me, having market stalls, having my migration business, I soon realized they were just businesses. They weren't changing the world. They were just another layer of business. Remember, you don't get rich from starting a business. You get rich from changing an industry. So for me, after meeting Jason and working within all three businesses, migration, property, and my market Christmas debacle, I decided it was time to team up with Jason full-time, and within months of Jason founding the business, I came on and eventually took up a partnership alongside Jason to run Positive Real Estate, which today really helps thousands of people transform their life through the property industry. We literally were pioneers in our time revolutionizing real estate at its core. We're probably pioneers when it came to being Australia's first buyer's agents. We were part of a select handful of people which started out working for buyers, finding them deals. We literally were the, one of the first teams to ever cross borders and find real estate for people who lived, for example, in Sydney and Western Australia. We'd find them deals in South Australia and Queensland. And we would get out and about and put together some of the most interesting opportunities at its time. And uh, so it was absolutely an awesome time for us. Our foundation years were all about creating a niche. We weren't making any money, but we were certainly on a bit of a mission to change the way real estate works. And of course, back then we followed the model of find high cash flow, high returning real estate. At the time, we were both broke. Literally, Jason's probably got some great stories about how broke he was. And I'll tell you what, for me, probably the lowest point of my life was searching for coins in my sofa to eat. And that was life back then. Because when you start a business, again, you just don't run into lots of cash flow. Everything you make goes back into the business and fundamentally you eat last and for me definitely had some moments where put my card in the ATM machine and no money would come out and it was like what can I find today to buy a bowl of rice and get through to tomorrow but we were doing some cool things and it really didn't matter about money for us we were 
finding opportunities which were absolutely stunningly different to what people were exposed to. See, back then, real estate was really illiquid. Realestate.com was just commencing. And what realestate.com did was it allowed us to see into small towns which for the first time ever, we could understand the value proposition of those neighbourhoods. See, the only other way to see into those small towns was to go to them, to drive through Gunnedah and go, ah, you can buy a $50,000 property in Gunnedah. For the first time, Gunnedah was up in lights through technology. Technology disrupted these marketplaces. So we started finding deals which were absolutely inexpensive, renting for huge amounts. $54,000 properties, for example, in Murrumbah, Queensland, renting for $200, $250 a week. All of a sudden, one deal for $54,000 could create $250 a week in income for people. And people absolutely swarmed to it in droves. I single-handedly helped all of those people buy those first transactions our company ever did. And along the way, we've learned some lessons, we've seen some pitfalls, we've made mistakes, but we've also read markets very well. Murrumbah went on to be a million-dollar real estate marketplace. And of course, when Murrumbah went to about $250,000 in value, we got out of there because we thought it was expensive then. That was when everyone else actually got in. And of course, they went on to get stung with the great crash of Murrumbah's mining marketplace. We were buying real estate for nickels and dimes. We were doing deals with BHP, buying their properties off them in places like Port Hedland for anywhere from fifty dollars to $110,000. In fact, the real estate agent back then that ran real estate in Port Hedland, a great guy by the name of Peter Dunning, had never seen anything like it. That all of a sudden, someone was ringing from Sydney looking to buy these uh, very inexpensive properties because of their rental return. Pete was so taken back by the amount of interest, he got in his car from Port Hedland and uh, took a photograph of a dust storm of the Pilbara, uh, the most beautiful photo you've ever seen, and put it on his roof racks and drove from Port Hedland to Sydney to give it to me to say thanks. It's a very amazing gesture. But we were, it's, I've still got it by the way, it's hanging in uh, one of the bedrooms, absolutely cracking photo. But uh, I tell you what, we were doing some interesting work, absolutely recreating real estate all together in Australia. Now, of course, a lot of these cash flow strategies no longer exist in Australia, in, in Australia. And I would argue not to do them right now because they've gone up too much in value. But the risk of a fifty dollars or $100,000 real estate deal was very low back then. Today, a home in Port Hedland might be six or seven or $800,000. Would I buy there today? No. But back then, it was 
where the action was. I mean, we were doing some incredible deal making. This is where I really, I guess, created 10,000 hours in my life of real estate work. Now, if you've ever understood the 10,000 hour principle, it's basically there is a tipping point. If you do something long enough, you get good at it, you become a master of your craft, you tip into becoming really an expert in your industry. 10,000 hours applies to anything. It could apply to raising kids for those family members listening, to playing the violin, to playing basketball. You do something long enough, you get good at it, and that then uh, becomes you. And of course, for me, I did all sorts of strategies from subdivision to development to finding these cash cows in crazy places to start a titling real estate uh, to off the plan opportunities to constructing brand new properties to even optioning properties and moving forward through life. I mean, Jason and I did some incredible deals ourselves. We bought on option deeds, which is just basically the right to buy property without having to settle it. We bought 15 properties in Moree. I mean, Moree is in the middle of nowhere. The only thing good about Moree is the artesian spring water baths that people, or particularly older people, go to to fix their bones. It's the only reason you would go to Moree. If you had arthritis, you would love Moree. If you don't have arthritis, you don't love Moree. We bought a property on a deed for $1.5 million, paid $19,000 to register the titles, we got an uplift of a million dollars. We made a million dollars out of a place which fundamentally no one would ever go to unless they have arthritis. We discovered real estate. We discovered the wealth guide to real estate. And for me, I remember when I got back in the game and it really taught me some valuable lessons around how real estate really works. Real estate is a monopoly board. After losing all of my money in my first real estate deal, money I'd spent years saving, I saved $30,000 from wages, hustling. I mean, that is a lot of money. How could I do that again? Well, within 18 months of losing money on my first transaction, I'd saved a bit of money, but I also got into hustling. And I remember a mate of mine and me, we found four houses, four houses that the Western Australian Housing Authority wanted demoed and removed from the land. They put out a tender. Could someone come and remove these properties? The houses online looked great and they weren't really demolition worthy, but the government wanted them removed and they're asking for tenders and for builders to tender to take the properties away from the land. And of course, me and my friend decided, why not? We've got nothing to lose. Let's tender for it. We're not builders, but they may never actually realise that. So builders put in their tender quotes. They were anywhere from thirty dollars to $100,000 to remove the four homes. We put in our quote. And they were, we quoted $5,000 to buy the homes off 
the Western Australian government. And of course, lo and behold, we won the tender. Then it was like, shit, what do we actually do here to get rid of these houses? We're not builders. We don't know anything about demoing homes. And of course, we were given 60 days and a rather official government letter that we needed to stump up and move these homes or risk being fined for uh, some sort of breach of tender dynamics. So all of a sudden, we had won this tender. We owed the government $20,000. We had nothing, no money, not enough to pay out the $20,000 tender. That night, what did we do? We put the houses on the trading post back at the time, which was quite a thing. Anyone older, older than 40 might remember the trading post. It was, uh, it was uh, if you ever watched The Castle, tell them they're dreaming. That was the trading post. So I tell you what, we put the houses on for $80,000, $20,000 per house. And lo and behold, someone came along and offered us close to that amount, which uh, we sold all four houses and had them removed within the 60-day time frame. And we used other people's money, this $80,000, we got $20,000 a house, other people's money to pay out the government their 20 grand and of course, me and my friend ended up splitting 60K and getting back in the game. See, real estate is as much about how you hustle as it is about the real estate itself. I always say this, real estate is reliable, people are unreliable. If you are determined to become wealthy from real estate, you can do it. There are some lessons in this podcast and I hope you've enjoyed listening to it. The main things I really want you to take away from this podcast is if you do it for the money, if you go out and start a business for the money, you're probably going to fail. Jason and I do this because we are in love with the idea of reshaping the world through real estate. You don't get ahead from just starting a business, you get ahead from niching an industry. It's a big takeaway. If you want to change the world, think differently in your industry. Whether you're the local florist, whether you're local butcher, think differently. Niche your industry. And once you do something long enough, you get good at it, find your tipping point, your 10,000 hours, become a master of something, and you'll be worth more to the market than ever before. And finally, being uncomfortable financially, like I was in my first economic uh, decade, is actually not a bad thing. It can teach you so many principles of hustling, how to go out and make money. Remember the first seven years of my economic life, I was broke, the balance of my economic life rich. How did I do that? Simply hustling. Remember folks, you can change the world through real estate. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. I've enjoyed bringing it to you and remember to tune in for some more great episodes of this show. It's been an absolute buzz talking to you. Thanks so much. See you soon. Thanks for tuning in to the Urban Property Investor. To never miss an episode, make sure you subscribe to the podcast on your favorite app or on YouTube. And I would love it if you could give the show a rating and share it with your friends and family. In between episodes, you can always keep in touch with me by connecting on social media 
over Facebook, Instagram, or LinkedIn. Until we meet again on the next episode with the Urban Property Investor, take care and bye for now.